You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In 2002, uh, my wife Karen and I were both hired by Shiloh Hills Christian School right outside Atlanta, Georgia. Karen taught English and I taught Bible, but we also coached. Karen coached the volleyball team and together with her help, I coached the varsity girls basketball team. Now it's important for you to know that at that point in my life, I had been married for a whopping one year and had grown up in a family of all boys. So you can imagine that my experience of coaching high school girls basketball was interesting and enlightening. I would never have done it without Karen, and frankly, I don't don't think I could have done it without Karen. There were multiple times when her expertise saved me. Like when I would ask, Karen, why is she crying? She was laughing two seconds ago. Of course, well, Navigating the minefield of adolescent emotions, I was also expected to teach the girls something about basketball. Thankfully, my older brother Chris was an accomplished basketball coach, and when I asked him for advice, he simply told me, make sure the girls are fundamentally sound. Teach them how to do the little things well. If they know the fundamentals, they'll be way ahead of most teams. So this is what I did. The majority of every practice was spent working on dribbling, passing, shooting correctly, boxing out, and you can fill in the blank. You don't have to be a great sports mind to understand that the teams that do the little things well, the teams that have mastered the fundamentals, by and large, these are the most successful teams. This is a good reminder that we tend to make everything more complicated than it needs to be. It's good for us to be reminded about the importance of the fundamentals. The, The basic building blocks need to be in place or there will be no improvement and growth. Friends, this is how I want you to think about the Lord's Prayer. If you're a new believer, prayer is the fundamental activity of the Christian life. And the Lord's Prayer offers you the most basic building blocks for this vitally important discipline. But if you've been a believer for some time, anywhere from five to 50 or more years, it is good and necessary to return often to the basics, especially the basics of something as fundamental to the Christian life as prayer. Why? Well, one major reason is something I mentioned last week. We need to understand that with this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not instituting a new ritual, a prayer to be memorized and performed as part of a stale and lifeless liturgy. No, Jesus is giving us a pattern for sincere and thoughtful communion with God grounded in unchanging everlasting truth. This is why we're going to walk slowly through this prayer. I want you to understand every aspect of it. 
I want you to avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the meaningless repetition of the Gentiles. I want you to understand that the foundation and fuel for prayer is the greatness of God like we talked about last week. And this week, I want you to gain a clear understanding of why the first building block placed upon the foundation of the greatness of God is a reference to the kingdom of God. Now, under the sovereign hand of God, there is this perfect convergence of events. Last week, we witnessed the baptism of six brothers and sisters in Christ. And this week, we will come to the Lord's table together. You see, the broken body and shed blood of Christ and redeemed sinners following Jesus in baptism are inescapably linked to the kingdom of God. And they're a sure sign that this kingdom is alive and well. So let's look together at our text. I think it would be good. I think it would be good for us to read the Lord's Prayer out loud together. So I'm reading from the ESV. If that's not the version you have, it will be on the screen. So let's read this out loud together, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's stop there. How does verse 10 begin? Your kingdom come. As Jesus gives his perfect instruction on prayer, he teaches us to ask for God's kingdom to come. In fact, we sang it together as a body of believers. But if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you, you might remember that I explained that the kingdom of heaven invaded this world and arrived on the scene with the birth of King Jesus. The king and his kingdom have already come. So if the kingdom has already come, then why is King Jesus telling his people to pray for the kingdom to come? Again, remember the nature of the kingdom of God and remember that there is an already and not yet reality to this kingdom. Yes, the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is yet to come in its fullness. We need to understand this or we will be like the Gentiles who are just uttering empty phrases. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us here. He writes this. The kingdom of God is among you and within you, Luke 17, 21. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian and therefore in the church. It means the reign of God, the reign of Christ. And Christ is reigning today in every true Christian. He reigns in the church when she acknowledges him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. And the kingdom is yet to come. 
So friends, when we talk about God's kingdom in this sense, we are talking about God's sovereign action towards sinners and sending his son to die as a willing substitute and then to be raised as the victor over death. Through Christ, God is saving his church made up of redeemed men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right now, in Christ, God's kingdom exists and his rule is real in the hearts and lives of his people. This is why when someone is baptized, the last thing they say before they enter the waters of baptism, Jesus is Lord. He's my king. It's what the apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian believers. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So listen, the kingdom has come and the kingdom continues breaking into this fallen world as God sovereignly delivers an increasing number of sinners from the domain of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son. As those who are lost in their sin are redeemed and forgiven, plunged into the waters of baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life, this is the evidence that God's kingdom has come and is coming and cannot be stopped. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know exactly what you are praying for when you cry out to God and you plead with him. Your kingdom come. This is not simply a request you pray for. It is a work you engage in. This is not simply a request you pray for. It is a work you engage in. I think you'll see this over the next two weeks. So let me suggest that when we pray When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for at least four things. I'll cover two this morning and two next week. Here they are. We are praying first that the gospel will be preached boldly. That the gospel will be preached boldly. Number two, that the gospel will be displayed publicly. That the gospel will be displayed publicly publicly. Number three, that Jesus Christ will be worshiped globally. That Jesus Christ will be worshiped globally. And four, that ultimately God will reign perfectly. That the gospel will be preached boldly, that the gospel will be displayed publicly, that Jesus Christ will be worshiped globally, that ultimately God will reign perfectly. So first, first, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying that the gospel will be preached boldly. What did Jesus say when he was interacting with the Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3? Here's what the text records. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Friends, the kingdom of God will only come when the gospel is boldly preached and sinners are born again by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way God designed for it to be. The gospel is declared, sinners hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner, the sinner receives Christ, is given new life, and he is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying, I love this, we are praying for the success of the gospel. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the success of the gospel. And if the gospel is going to be successful, the church gathered and scattered is going to have to declare it boldly. The kingdom will come when churches like ours and people like you and me engage in the work of making disciples. The commission of the risen Christ to his people is clear. This is not new to most of you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's commissioning. He's commissioning his disciples and he's commissioning us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, we have been commissioned by our King. He has given us his authority and the power of his Spirit, and he has done this for a specific reason so that we might go and make disciples in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, through ministries in this church, through the relationships God gives you at your gym or your school or the place your kids get music lessons or the parents you meet through your children's sports teams or anybody else. If you pray earnestly and longingly for God's kingdom to come, do you realize, do you realize that you're also asking God to do something in you? The intent of Jesus' words in this model prayer is not that his people would pray for the success of the gospel through pastors and missionaries alone. No, the understanding is that you, you are asking God to use you. Again, this is not simply a request you pray for. It is a work you engage in. You see, in God's sovereignty, this is wonderful. We saw this through the book of Acts. In God's sovereignty, he has chosen to grow his kingdom through the faithful witness of very normal, feeble, weak, but spirit-filled church members. These normal church members are jealous for the worship of Jesus Christ. They believe the risen lamb deserves the worship of every person. These normal church members are not aimlessly walking through life enamored with the comforts and amusements of this world. These normal church members believe there is a heaven 
for the righteous and an eternal place of torment for the unrighteous called hell. These normal, spirit-filled church members share the urgency of Charles Spurgeon who said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. When we pray, in sincerity and with humility for God's kingdom to come, we are pleading with God, would you do something in us so that you might do something through us? For the glory of Christ, for the good of the world. God's kingdom cannot and will not come in the sense that we are to pray for it unless the gospel is preached boldly by all believers. Second, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying that the gospel will be displayed publicly. There is an undeniable connection between what people believe and how they behave. If anything has been clear in the Sermon on the Mount so far, it might be this. There is an organic connection between the root and the fruit. You don't plant an apple tree with the expectation that it will soon bring you a wonderful harvest of pears. And Jesus will make this point crystal clear a couple of times in the last half of his sermon But here's what I want you to get this morning. The kingdom of God, listen to this, the kingdom of God is not just positional, it's also behavioral. The kingdom of God is not just positional, it's also behavioral. If you have been made new in Christ, then positionally, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and that can't be taken away. But flowing out of this positional reality are massive behavioral implications. We could say it this way. God will use his people to boldly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, but when we pray for his kingdom to come, we are also asking as his people that our own lives will increasingly display the truth and reality of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what have we said from the very beginning of this series? Jesus is not explaining the way into the kingdom, but the way of the kingdom. And where did Jesus begin his sermon? With the Beatitudes. This is what it looks like for the redeemed to walk in the way of Jesus. This is the good life. In fact, I want want to read over these once again. So flip to the Beatitudes again, and let's look at these. I want you to see this. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, Jesus is speaking to the gathered 
crowd. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is so much in the Beatitudes about the behavior of God's people. Now, to be clear, it's about behavior that the Holy Spirit animates in all those who have been made new in Christ, and it's behavior born of a heart captivated by the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. But even so, no one can read the Beatitudes and walk away thinking that righteous living is unimportant for followers of Jesus. No one can conclude that Jesus is crucifying morality in this sermon. He is crucifying moralism. But Jesus cares deeply about the righteous living of his people. Look at the Beatitudes again. Humility. Sorrow over the effects of sin meekness, hunger for God, mercy, purity, peacemaking, a willingness to suffer persecution and oppression with joy. Friends, lives marked by these attitudes and actions display the reality of the gospel before the onlooking world. This is a glimpse of the good life. It's a glimpse of the kingdom. And it can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. So here's how it works. Your unbelieving coworkers, neighbors, and friends, well, they live in the world that you live in. It's a world dominated by sin and darkness. They're constantly confronted with dishonesty and pride by the hunger for power and recognition. Most of them are exhausted and frustrated and even hopeless, though they may try hard to hide it. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying that our lives would reveal more clearly the forgiveness and freedom we have in Christ. We want unbelievers to see that we are humble and we are hopeful all because of Christ. Ultimately, we want those who are lost to see our good works and be drawn to Christ. Now remember the possible tension Aaron talked about a few weeks ago, right? Look at Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, what did Aaron say was the key to resolving this possible tension? Well, the key is motivation. Rather than practicing your righteousness before men for your own glory, live live righteously before men for God's glory. The key question is this, whose glory motivates your righteous living? Is your heart inclined to say, look at me? Or is your heart inclined to say, look at him? The kingdom will come when the gospel is preached boldly and the gospel is displayed publicly. Your life, walking in the way of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, is intended by God to have an effect. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. Some of you have heard the quote, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That's a really stupid thing to say. It's totally unbiblical. It's like saying, give me your phone number. If necessary, use numbers. Friends, the gospel is news. It has content. Content that must be declared. But I think I know, I think I know what people are getting at when they use that misguided quote. I think they're trying to emphasize the importance of the good works that accompany gospel proclamation. Brothers and sisters, we absolutely do believe this. We believe this because Jesus believed it. In fact, I would argue that Jesus' half-brother James is summarizing much of what Jesus himself teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. It's fascinating how many times the Sermon on the Mount is quoted or alluded to in James. So I think James is summarizing this overarching point when he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Redeemer family, it's so important that we commit ourselves to preach the gospel with our lips and display the gospel with our lives. Both. This is why we have stressed from day one and consistently now for four years that we must embrace both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Why? Because the primary means, please get this, the primary means by which God's kingdom will come, God's sovereign plan for the greater breaking in of his kingdom before he comes again is what? It's the witness and the work of the church. That's the plan. It's the witness and the work of the church. 
So if we are pleading and praying for God's kingdom to come, we are praying and pleading in part that the church will be healthy and strong, that it will faithfully declare and demonstrate the gospel, that it will embrace both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And here's why this is so important, friends. Ray Ortland writes, a church with the truth of the gospel. I'm going to get to the part that's on the screen in a minute. I want you to hear this. A church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice. The test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. Truth without grace is harsh and ugly. Grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. So, gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are pleading with God for the church to be powerful. So brothers and sisters, the power of the church is not found in new and more creative programs or a better band or a bigger building. It's found in going back to the basics. Embracing what is fundamental. Declare the gospel, display the gospel. Declare the gospel, display the gospel. And as a church, how can we help you do this? There are many ways, but perhaps the chief way is by rehearsing the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again. We want your hearts to be so captured by the love you have received in Christ that this gospel then motivates you to declare it and display it. So as we approach the table, I've asked the worship team to sing the song, Jesus, Thank You. Talk about going back to the basics, the fundamentals. It is our thankfulness, our gratitude for all we have received in Christ that comes spilling over once we leave this place. Now, before we sing, let me just encourage you. Right? Don't just fall in line with what you think you're supposed to do 
when we sing a song, some of you should probably just listen to the words. You've come discouraged and dry. And you need the truth of the gospel sung by God's people to serve like a refreshing spring of water for your parched soul. So just listen. Just listen and be encouraged. Some of you may need to use this time to pray and plead with God to motivate and mobilize you to speak the gospel more boldly and display it more publicly. Finally, some of you, some of you need to lift your voices in praise to God as a most appropriate means of giving him thanks and inviting your brothers and sisters into your joy, into your thankfulness, into your gratitude. So if you'd like to, and you don't have to, some can stay seated, some can remain in prayer, some can stand. But let me invite you, if you'd like to, to stand. And we will sing this song together as a means of preparing our hearts to come to the table.